But let's open our Bibles this morning to John's Gospel, chapter 8. John's Gospel, chapter 8. Last week, we, we spent a couple weeks in the seventh chapter where Jesus' brothers, who initially they didn't believe in Jesus, but a few of them came to Christ. Um, as, as far as we know, many of them, uh, perhaps all of them, I know we know that Jude and James were two Jesus' half-brothers who came to faith in him after his death and resurrection. Uh, don't know about the other brothers. But remember in uh, John chapter 7 that we looked at, his brothers before uh, Jesus' crucifixion were encouraging Jesus to go up into the temple, up into Jerusalem at the feast time to make himself known, to manifest himself to not only Jerusalem, but to everyone in Jerusalem and thus to the world. But you remember the common refrain that we see in the Gospel of John. It says that his hour had not yet come or his time was not yet. And there was a time that Jesus would go to Jerusalem and the sole purpose of going was to die on that cross. Remember, Jesus was not a martyr. Uh, any religious man who dies for the cause of his religion, we call them a martyr. But Jesus said, I willingly lay down my life for my sheep. And I don't know this morning, did you know that you're a sheep? Yes. All we like sheep, unfortunately, we've all gone astray, but hopefully all of us have come back into the fold. Amen. And so, but we are like sheep, and he died for every single person who's willing to put their faith and their trust in his atoning sacrifice on the cross. The only way that we can be right with God is a relationship with the one whom he sent. His very name means God's salvation, which means that there's no other way that we can reach the Father but through him. That's what Jesus said. There's no other way. There's no other holy man. There's no other guru. There's no other system on the planet that we can go through to earn our favor. Because if you can earn it, then it's not of grace. But God is a God of grace, and he has concluded all of us under sin. All of us have committed sin. Is there anybody here who is sinless? If you do, raise your hand. <laughs> It'd be kind of awkward in a place like this, right? We would all look at you. Just by the fact that you raised your hand, you made yourself a liar, you know? Because we've all sinned, right? And um, certainly not proud of that, not happy with that, but I'm so thankful that while we were yet sinners, the scripture tells us, Christ died for us. While we were still yet in our sin, he went to the cross to bear the price that you and I deserve, which is what? death and not only not only physical death because the bible says that the wages of sin is death not only physical death but we all of us everyone online too all of us in the whole entire world we deserve not only spiritual death but we deserve eternal death which is an eternal damnation nobody likes to talk about that today because it doesn't draw visitors but i'd rather tell the truth and have three people in the pews than to lie to you and tell you that you're good you're good. You've given enough to the church? Oh, then you're good. Everything's fine. No, it's not fine. There's a big problem. And you and I both know what that is. It's sin. And we see it in the world. We see it messing up everything. We see it in our own lives. Even as Christians, it doesn't make us sinless, but we have an advocate that when we do sin, that we can be forgiven by just trusting the blood of Jesus Christ over us. Isn't that the promise that Jesus made? 
He says, if you confess your sins, and I, am, I will be faithful to not only to forgive you, but to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Have you done that today? Have you taken him up on that promise? I take him up on that promise all the time. And I think the closer we get to the Lord, the more we realize, you know, Lord, I'm just not all that I thought I was. I thought I was this great thing. I thought I was better than everybody else. You know what? Hopefully all that thought can just leave every one of us. There's not one of us better than the other. But hopefully we've all given our heart to Jesus Christ, the only one who can save us from our sin. There's no other man. Buddha can't do it. Allah can't do it. No Eastern mysticism can do it. There's no crystal that you can rub long enough and fast enough and pray over long enough. There's nothing but Jesus Christ. Amen. So Jesus went up to the Feast of Tabernacles. We saw that in John chapter 7. And there was a lot of confusion about who Jesus was. There were some people who knew a little bit. Some people knew a little bit more. Some people were completely clueless as to who this was that healed this paralytic man. We saw that in John chapter 5. Only God can truly heal. That's something that the devil cannot do. And the devil is not a, he's not omniscient, he's not omnipotent, he's not omnipresent. The Bible says that he is a created being, and God alone is the one who has the power, and he gives that power to whom he wills. So he is a created being. But Jesus goes up to this Feast of Tabernacles, which was really just a commemoration, a moment commemorating God's faithfulness to the Jews as they came out of Egypt when they spent 430 years in Egypt and God led them through the Sinai Peninsula up around and then finally coming into the promised land from the east and going west, crossing the Jordan into the promised land. It took them 40 years. It should have only taken them a couple weeks. But it took them 40 years because of their rebellion and God had to prove them in the desert and while they were in the desert, God didn't just leave them there. He, he provided for them food and water and shelter. And that's what the Feast of Tabernacles was all about. It was a commemoration of feeding a couple million people in the desert. Think of that. Think of the, the logistics of feeding around two million people in the desert. And yet God did that. And so the Jews to this day celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. But there was a lot of confusion in Jerusalem. Oh boy. <laughs> and so there was a lot of uh, confusion. Some people thought he was the prophet spoken of in Deuteronomy 18. Some people thought he was Elijah. Some people thought many different things. But who is Jesus? That is the question. Is he the son of God? Is he the sin bearer? Is he the Messiah that the scriptures for hundreds of years had spoken of? Yes, he is. And so Jesus, with all of this confusion, he finally goes up to Jerusalem again and he he starts to turn heads. And we pick up right now in, in chapter 7. 
And notice what it says. It says, after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want... Oop, wrong chapter. You know what? It's on the same side of the page, too. I totally got tripped up. You know, there, have you seen those pastor's bloopers? You know, maybe that'll be on one of them. Open up the chapter 8, and I'm reading from Genesis, you know. So... So after this, it says, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and now early in the morning he came into the temple, and all the people came to him. And he sat down and he taught them. And then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And then those who heard it, notice, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. And this is the, one of the, the great commands that Jesus could give to us. Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. Now, when we look at the very last verse of chapter 7, notice it says, And everyone went to his own house. There are um, many uh, textual scholars and those who know about these things and study the original manuscripts. Many of them, uh, many of your Bibles, in fact, if you have an NIV or any other Bible, you'll notice that sometimes in the, in the margin of your Bible, there'll be something mentioning that this verse 53 of chapter 7 down through chapter, uh, or verse 11 of chapter 8, those 12 verses, are not in the original. And the truth of the matter is, is that they are in some of them, but many of them, this passage that we read this morning is not there. Or it's mixed up and, and, and put in different other places within the Gospel of John. Now, I believe that the Scripture is inerrant. I also believe that it is inspired of God. And so we need not worry about these things. In fact, some manuscripts even have a, a, a space that is there for this passage and for whatever reason wasn't written in. But it's very peculiar and yet some manuscripts have it, some don't. But it doesn't really matter because we know that this is something that happened in Jesus' life. In fact, if you remember at the very end of this book, John says this. He said, this is the disciple which testifies of these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they could be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the book's that could be written. So this is an inspired passage, and we're going to read it anyway. And it puts a finger on a very important topic in our culture today and in many marriages, and we know that that is adultery. Go back with me at verse 1. 
Notice that after Jesus is up on the Temple Mount, it says that everyone went to his own home in the last verse there, but in verse 1 of chapter 8, but Jesus, he went to the Mount of Olives. Jesus often went to the Mount of Olives. And there is a place called the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus would often retire. You remember on the night that he was taken, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples when Judas and a band of soldiers came to arrest Jesus unlawfully at night with no jury, no due process, and they rushed him into the judgment hall to have him sentenced to death. The same place Jesus would retire again. He would go to the Mount of Olives. And it says, now early in the morning, now this is the very morning after the Feast of Tabernacles, the very next morning. Now the Feast of Tabernacles was one of three feasts that the Jews all around the world would come into Jerusalem at this time. So Jerusalem is still very filled with people. Innumerable, probably two or three million people at the temple this, at this time and around the area. And Jesus goes up early in the morning. He comes to the temple. All the people come to him. And, they sat, and, they, and he sat down and he taught them. And Jesus was very much aware that there were many who wouldn't believe in him. But he continued to preach. And he continued to teach. The work of God is like that, isn't it? God calls us to be a fisherman. He's the one who throws the net and he catches men. In fact, didn't he, didn't he say that to his disciples when he first called them? He said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Because when a man goes fishing, he has no idea what he's going to catch. You throw that bait over the side, you don't know whether you're going to pull up a, a, a sunfish that's of no good to eat but a lot of fight in it. Are you going to catch a trout? Are you going to catch a bass? Are you going to hook a great white shark? You have no idea what you're going to get. But Jesus cast the net. He casts the net. And you're here today because you were caught in his wonderful net. The truth of the gospel was cast out. And some replied, some responded, some said, no thank you. I'm good enough. I can do my own thing and somehow earn my favor with God. If you're thinking that way, you're self-deceived. But the net is thrown out. And aren't you glad you've been caught? I am so glad that I've been caught. I was that guy who had the net all wrapped around my hands and I had seaweed around my head. And the Lord cleaned me up and he pulled me out of the net. And he said, I got you. You're mine now. No longer are you a slave to this world. No longer are you a slave to the enemy of your soul, Satan. See, you are either in Christ or you are not. You are either one of his or you belong to the evil one. And you may say, well, I don't belong to either. Oh, yes, you do. You belong to either one of them. If you do not belong to Christ, then you're part of an organization, part of a group of people that have found some other way to make themselves right with God. And there's no other way. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father except through me. There's no other way. You're either in him or you are not in him. And I pray that every one of you have made that decision already. And if you haven't, today is the day. Do not wait another day. Your life is not certain. You have no idea what tomorrow holds. You don't even know what today holds. When you leave this parking lot today, you have no idea. We have cameras all around this building and inside the building, actually, for security. 
And I remember one time, the, I, I, it was made aware of, I was made aware that there was a big accident out here. And I reviewed the cameras and I was looking at them. I saw a car go by, ran through the, it was probably going over 100 miles an hour, went right straight through the light, hit the embankment, flipped over on its back, went airborne. And we had this all on tape. The car went up like this and skidded down fast past track on its back, right on its hood of the car. And I thought to myself, wow. Any one of us could have been coming out, not even aware. See, that's life, isn't it? Unfortunately, it seems very random. We don't have an opportunity, but right now. And I want to encourage you to make that choice for Christ today. Don't put it off. You have no idea. Those four young cheerleaders from Fairport High School back in 2015, they just graduated, and they were on their way to one of the Finger Lakes to enjoy a weekend after graduation. They didn't make it. Remember the fiery crash? All five of them were killed. All five of them, and they had their life ahead of them. Do you know when your time is up? We don't know. And I'm so glad that I know Christ now because no matter what happens to me, I know where I'm going. Not because of any goodness that I have, but because of his goodness, his righteousness. The blood of Jesus Christ has covered my sin, and I am in him, and he will not take that away. Why? Because he doesn't give things and take them away. When he gives you the gift of salvation, you are surely his. And nothing in heaven above or on earth beneath can pluck you out of his hand. Nothing and no one. Amen? You have to believe that. And you have to understand that. Because if you don't, your life is going to be like a, a roller coaster. Feeling one day, yeah, I feel saved. The next day, oh, I don't feel saved because I messed up. Hey, listen, we all mess up. David messed up. David committed things that none of us in this room have done. And guess where David is? He's in glory with, with Jesus. He didn't continue those things. He repented, didn't he? But notice these these scribes in verse 3 they come and they Jesus is having this Bible study think of this it'd be like us having a study except a few more thousand people around and then while Jesus is speaking to them on the temple mount the religious leaders the legalists the group of fancy pants comes up to Jesus dragging this woman I'm sure it was a sight dragging her She's thinking to herself, I am surely done. This is my last day on this earth. Not only have these religious leaders caught me, but now I'm going before Jesus. They brought the woman, they caught her in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, and they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. And if she was caught in the act, I want you to read the Bible like this. Where is the man? If she was caught in the very act, where is the man? The Pharisees knew this woman. They probably knew her a little too well. They knew exactly where she was going to be. I almost wonder if they orchestrated this whole thing. Who was this man? Why didn't he come to? Did he get away? Or maybe he was one of the friends of the Pharisees. Maybe he was a Pharisee. Caught in the act. Where was he? My mom says it always takes two to tango. Right? Why is only she being brought? Why does the woman always get the brunt of the stick? Why not the man? But the culture back in this time in Israel, we know, had a greater estimation and respect for men than for women. 
But the law of God is clear in this matter because God is not a respecter of persons. Meaning he's, he's, not, he does, he, he's not partial to anyone or any group of people. What he says is true and that applies to everybody regardless of whether you're a Jew or a Gentile or whatever. But adultery is a sin. She was caught in the very act. Adultery, by the very definition, is voluntary sexual intercourse between a married person and a person who is not their spouse. And within the sin of adultery is also the sin of fornication, because fornication is what? Illicit sexual relations with someone you are not married to. And if either or both of the two parties is married, it is called adultery. And if neither are married, it's just simply called fornication. Doesn't the Bible tell us in Exodus, you shall not commit adultery. This is one of the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery. And there are a lot of statistics. I don't have, um, I, I was tempted to have a bunch of statistics, but the statistics are overwhelming today. Outside of the church and even inside of the church, people are living in adultery. People living together when they're not married. If you are one of those people today, you need to turn from that sin. If you're living with somebody who is not your spouse, you are in sin. And if you're having physical relations with that person, whether you live with them or not, it is fornication. Yes, that's a hard thing for our culture, isn't it? But it's the truth. And it's as bad in the church as it is outside the church. So when is the church going to step up and say, Lord, if I call you my Lord and Savior, why are you not my Lord? I want to call you my Savior, but I don't want you to be Lord of my life. Listen, if he's not Lord of your life, you're not going to have a lot of assurance that he's your Savior either. He may be. That's for him and you to know. But are you living in adultery this morning? Are you living and sleeping with someone that is not your spouse? You shall not commit adultery. And pornography, and this is an uncomfortable thing, I know everyone in the room is squirming, especially the men. Pornography is adultery. It is fornication. How does your wife feel, men, when you look at those things? If she finds out, what does that make her feel like? It makes her feel like she's not good enough. You've betrayed her, you've betrayed God, and yes, in your heart you know what's wrong. Yes, and there are, just like a drug, pornography is like a drug because when you take a drug, there's endorphins in your brain that go off and it creates this buzz, this excitement. And yes, pornography is the same thing. Like video games, those endorphins are going off. What are you going to do with that? Are you going to continue in it, knowing that God is not pleased with it? Or are you going to turn from it, guys? Don't even look at it anymore. Make today the last day. For those of you who are online, this is going to go out over the radio too. So whoever's listening to this, put it away forever. Don't ever go back there again. Why would you do that? I know why you would do that, because I'm a man. But listen, love Christ more than any of that. And fight the good fight. You must fight. 
Don't just roll over and let the enemy have his way with you, because that's what happens to most men. The men just give up. They say, well, uh, uh, God made me feel this way. Yes, he gave you those urges and those things that drive, because that's how we propagate the world. Isn't that what he gave to Adam and Eve? He gave them. He gave them a commandment. He put that in us. But it has to be done lawfully and within the bonds of marriage between a husband, a male, and a female, a wife. Amen? That's what God says. If you have a problem with that, take it up with him. But you're going to lose. He makes the rules. He knows what's good for you. And aren't you glad for that? He knows what's good for you. He loves you. He knows what's best for you. And that means everything, every decision in your life, it's because he loves you. He wants you to grow. He wants you to prosper. He wants you to be fruitful, right? In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, Jesus, speaking of adultery in the heart, being, uh, not only being wrong, but also adultery in the flesh, notice what Jesus said. Most people think, well, if I didn't commit adultery like this woman did, then I'm good. Well, you've got a problem. He says, Jesus said, you've heard that it was said those of old, you, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Yes. It's that severe. I mean, God doesn't literally mean for you to pluck out your eye, but it ought to be that serious to us. It ought to be that grave to us. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more profitable that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whosoever divorces his wife for any reason except for sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Those are some hard words, and yet our culture is filled with these kinds of things. Now, if you're, under the, if you're a Christian this morning, and you've given your heart to Christ, and you've confessed these things, they're no longer on your account. But walk in that purity, walk in that truth of God's word from now going forward, and you have every reason to rejoice then. He will cast your sin as far as behind him, as far as the east is from the west. He'll forgive you, but you have to take the initiative. Amen? Solomon in Proverbs 6, he says, My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not the law of your mother. Bind them continually upon your heart. Tie them about your neck. When you go, it shall lead you, and when you sleep, it shall keep you. Speaking of wisdom, of course. And when you awake, it shall talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp, and the law is light. And reproves of instructions are the way of life. To keep you from the evil woman, from the flattery of the tongue of a strange woman. Lust not after her beauty in your heart, neither let her take thee with her eyelids. For by means of a whorish woman, a man is brought to a piece of bread. And how often has that happened in our culture today? Men of, you know, heads of, of companies and corporations, men's of men of churches, pastors of churches, falling into adultery. These kind of things just ought not to be. And it's a serious thing. 
And there's much in the word of God telling us and warning us against those things. Notice what Solomon said to his son in verse 27 of this Proverbs 6. Can a man take fire into his bosom and his clothes be not burned? A rhetorical question. The obvious is yes. You take fire into your bosom, you're going to get burned. Can one go upon hot coals and his feet not be burned? So he that goes in to his neighbor's wife, whoever touches her shall not be innocent. Men do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his soul when he's hungry. But if a man, but if he be found, he shall restore sevenfold. But it goes on and says, but those who commit adultery with a woman lacks understanding that he does, that he that does it destroys his own soul. Does that sound like a good warning? It is. Guys, we need to be very careful. Ladies, you know, it used to be that pornography was a thing only men did, but now women are doing it too. And the generation of young girls coming up, it, it's, it's the, the scales are almost balanced of, the, of those who are watching it. And that spirit, that's adultery as well. The pornography, the lasciviousness, it's it pervaded our culture. It's in all of our, every magazine on the front covers of magazines. It's in all the filthy music that Spotify and Apple put out. It's in the movies. You know, they always show everybody when everything is going well and they're having an affair and everything is good and it sounds really great. The Bible says that sin is pleasurable for a season, but then the bill comes due. They don't show you on television. They don't tell you in the music that that is what happens. They only talk about the part that everybody likes to talk about, but there's a price to be paid for that sin. Are you willing to pay that price? Without Christ, you will pay the price. It's a very serious thing. In Leviticus chapter 20, back in the Old Testament, the Lord speaks to the children of Israel not only of physical adultery, but spiritual adultery as well. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Again, you shall say to the children of Israel, Whoever of the children of Israel or of the strangers who dwell in Israel, who gives any of his descendants to Molech, he shall surely be put to death. And the people of the land shall stone him with stones. And I will set my face against that man and will cut him off from his people because he has given some of his descendants to Molech. He's speaking of spiritual adultery. Going to a false god, the children of Israel were judged for their spiritual adultery and their physical adultery. God allowed them to be taken into captivity by the Assyrians, and even the Judah and Jerusalem taken into captivity by the Babylonians. Those things happened because they did not heed God's word. Instead, they continued in their sin. But then it goes down in Leviticus 20, verse 10. It says, The man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress, shall surely be put to death. Can you imagine if that was still the case today? How many people there'd be on the earth? Probably none. It'd be a desert. But thank God for his grace. And we see that in the life of this woman as she is brought. Jesus wasn't just this fierce, angry God who just wanted to come and just lay down the law and just have people put to death. He was a merciful and gracious God. 
Notice in verse 5 in our text this morning, it says, Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, they said, as they brought this woman. But what do you say? Little did they know that a greater than Moses was standing before them. Little did they know the Logos, the Word who became flesh, Almighty God had come and he was standing in their midst and they did not know it. In this very chapter at the end, which we will get to next week, Jesus said unto them, he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Abraham was several hundred years earlier, several hundred, even a couple thousand. He was before Christ, and yet Jesus said, before he was, I am. When he says, I am, he was ascribing deity to himself. You can look at Exodus chapter 3. We've looked at this. Even in Matthew chapter 12, as Jesus speaking to the Pharisees, speaking of the judgment to come, he said, a greater than Jonah is here. Yes, a greater than Jonah the prophet was standing in the midst of them, Jesus Christ. And notice verse 6, this they said, they said, what do you say? Moses said that we ought to murder or stone a woman or who is caught in adultery, but what do you say? And this they said, notice, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. And it makes you wonder, if they weren't, if they weren't trying to trick Jesus, would they have caught and stoned this woman, violating the Roman authorities? The Jews, remember, for a long time were able to execute capital punishment, but the Jews at this time, that authority had been taken away from them. They had no right to do that any longer. It was only the Romans who could issue the decision for capital punishment. You remember when Jesus, when they, brought the, when they came before Pilate? They wanted Pilate to put him to death because they didn't have the authority. They had to go to Pontius Pilate, the Roman figurehead, to ask him to put Jesus to death for blasphemy, which wasn't true at all because he was who he says he was. He was the Messiah. He is the Messiah. But if Jesus said yes, but what do you say? Should she be punished? Should she be killed for her sin? If Jesus would have said yes to having her stoned, he would have been breaking the law concerning the Romans thus putting him at odds with Caesar and Rome. If he didn't sentence her to death, then he would be breaking the law of Moses, because Moses said that a person who was caught in adultery should be put to death. They thought that they had Jesus cornered, didn't they? Little did they realize that he had them cornered. And I love this about the Lord. Again, how can you go up against Almighty God? How can you do it? He had them. They didn't have him. And is it good to test the Lord? In Isaiah chapter 7, remember Ahaz, the Judah, the king of Judah, the Lord spoke to King Ahaz and says, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. And you remember, it's in that same chapter that God gave him the sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. God with us, almighty God, everlasting fathers, it would say later on in Isaiah. But even an ungodly king like Ahaz knew not to test the Lord. This word test means to prove or to tempt, to try or to prove. You remember the devil did the same thing. 
In Matthew chapter 5, what does it say? The devil took Jesus up into the holy city. This is after his baptism. The devil took him up into the holy city, set him on a pinnacle and said, If you are, or since you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give us our angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And notice what Jesus said to the devil. It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. You shall not test him. You shall not try to prove him. See, God proves us, not the other way around. And yet there are men and women in universities and seminaries all over this country, all over this world, that have put God on trial. But God has us on trial. We have no right to put God on trial. His word is absolute. Do you believe that? He's to prove us. He's to test us. James says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing, the proving of your faith, what does it do? It produces patience. These men were on very shaky ground testing the Lord. Who are they and who are we to say to the Lord, What are you doing? What are you doing? In Isaiah 45, it says, Woe to him who strives with his maker. Let the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making or what are you doing? No, we don't. And that's who we are. We are like clay pots that God has formed. And he loves you. He loves you. Notice at the second part of verse 6, but Jesus, notice, stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. And this verse has been one of these verses that have stumped many people for a long time. In Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 3, it says, O Lord, O Jehovah, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. And those who depart from me, God says, shall be written in the earth. Because they have forsaken the Lord. Notice the fountain of living waters. I find this interesting because they had just been celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, right? Celebrating God's favor for providing food and shelter. And you remember that one of the rituals that they would do during the Feast of Tabernacles is the priest would take a golden pitcher and he would travel from the Temple Mount down to the Gahon Spring grab a pitcher of water and bring it back up to the temple mount, pouring it on the temple mount in memorial for what God, how God had provided water for them in the desert for those 40 years. And I love what it says, because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. Could it be that Jesus was writing their names in the earth because they had forsaken him? the fountain of living waters, as he stooped down, as they were questioning him, testing him? Could he have been writing their names on the ground? What was he writing? Was he writing the the commandments? Was he writing their name and then maybe also showing and writing the sins that they were committing? And yet here they were in their religious zeal, thinking that they could somehow force Jesus and catch him so that they would have something to accuse him of. Perhaps... Nobody knows what he wrote on the ground. It doesn't really matter, honestly. Don't even know if they saw what he was writing on the ground.
So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up, verse 7, and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. What an interesting thing to say. That's wisdom. He didn't respond to their question, but rather questioned them. He provoked them as they were trying to trap him. He turns a table around. I love that about Jesus. The wisdom of Solomon did the same thing. Remember the two women with the child? One of them killed the other one, and they came to Solomon. That's my son. No, that's my son. And he says, well, well, just bring me a sword. We'll just cut the child in half, and we'll give it. And the real mother made sure that she says, I couldn't stand that. I'd rather give my child away to this other woman than to have my child sacrificed. Same kind of wisdom. You know, sometimes the world presents you door A and door B, but think that there might be a door C. We tend to think and allow the world to manipulate us, allow even family and friends to manipulate us. There's usually another way. And oh, they'll hate you when you bring it up too. (laughs) Right? They'll say, you either got to do this or do this. Well, have you thought about this? No, I didn't think of that. But notice, Jesus didn't deny that she was caught in the act. He didn't deny it. It was true. He didn't deny that this sin was punishable by death because he knew that it was. But Jesus, in his mercy, he pardoned her. Notice the oldest, the men who had been around the longest, who had sinned enough in their life to know, you know what, there's no way I can stand here with this rock when I know in my heart. And he waited for them. And people are watching. Remember, there are a couple thousand people around Jesus and everything is quiet. And these legalists bring this woman to him and everyone is going, what is he going to do? Everybody's captivated. Think of the picture. Picture it in your head. And the oldest of those religious leaders decide to drop the stone because they realize, you know what? There are people in this crowd that I knew that I've sinned against. There are things that I've done in private that I have done that nobody knows but God. And the conviction that came over them was tremendous. Believe me, when the word of God comes to your heart, it will bring conviction It will bring great conviction. And I praise God for that. We need that. That's why it's important, you know, Proverbs tells us to keep our heart with all diligence, for out of it come forth the issues of life. And it's so true, isn't it? We need to keep our heart. Are you keeping your heart or are you giving it away? Are you giving it away or are you keeping it? Keep your heart with all diligence. There are so many things vying for your attention, your affection, your devotion. Whatever that thing is, you'd better be really careful. Be careful, brothers and sisters. The Bible says that the devil is like a roaring lion going throughout the earth, seeking whom he may devour. He wants to take you out. He can't take your salvation away from you, but boy, he can still tempt you. And God will allow it at times. But what do you do when you have the temptation? Do you fall to your knees and beg God for help? That's what I do. I would encourage you to do the same, but don't give in. You resist the devil, and the Bible says he will flee from you, but he'll come back again. You can be sure of it. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, right? Amen? 
That's the truth. I'm so glad. Aren't you glad you're a child of God? You know, there's a lot of bad news here, and this is really hitting some of us right between the eyes, but you know what? Let it happen. Let your heart get wounded, because if it's wounded, that means that there's growth. I fear the person who sets or listens to this later on, and then it has no effect on them, and yet their lives are in shambles. Let me tell you, that's the person I worry about, not the Christian who is dabbling or maybe on the verge of doing something or involved in something. Confess it and be done with it and be restored and never return to it. And if you do return to it again, confess it again and return or, you know, turn away from it. You continue fighting it. You fight it, fight it, fight it. Never give in. What was Jesus doing writing on the ground, I wonder? Was he playing tic-tac-toe? Was he playing hangman? That'd be interesting. But notice... Then those who heard what he said. Notice, not when they saw, but when they heard what he said. Notice that. It's an audible thing, not so much what they saw. I'm sure those men were watching what Jesus was writing. Nobody knows. The scripture is silent, so we don't need to worry about that. But it was when they heard what he said. The word of God coming forth from the word of God. He is the word of God. Jesus is the word of God. He spoke the word of God. Ye who were without sin, let you cast the first stone. It was what he said. What does it tell us in Hebrews? The word of God is quick and it's powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and as a discerner, notice, of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That's what the word of God, it's like a surgical tool. Where's the difference, the line? Where is the soul and the spirit? Where is that dividing line? The word of God knows it. Where is that dividing line? The word of God knows it. And when the word of God is used right in the, in the, at the right time, boy, it just wounds us. But it also brings great joy, doesn't it? It gives us great hope. You know, the Bible is not just a bunch of list of do's and don'ts. No, it's, a list, it's, a, it's filled with encouragement and grace. Filled with encouragement and grace. Then Jesus raised himself up and he saw no one but the woman. After they had dropped all their stones and one by one they walked away, he lifted up and he saw no one but the woman there. And of course, a couple thousand people who are probably just sitting there with their mouth wide open going, what is he going to do now? And he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. Notice, no one Lord, something happened on that mount. When she was being dragged in, she was assuming she was going to be killed, according to the law of Moses. And now Jesus convicts these holy men who everybody looks up to, and they are walking away, and now she's standing before the one who has the authority, God Almighty, Jesus Christ. And she might be thinking to herself, What's going to happen to me if he can draw those guys away? Those guys, I'm, I'm unclean, and I've been caught. What is he going to say? He says, neither do I condemn you. It is true that what you did was a sin. It's wrong. But guess what? I'm going to give you a commandment. And, I, and see... Jesus has the benefit of knowing the heart. He can look right through you. He knows exactly why you do the things you do. He knows the motivations. He knows the motives behind why you do what you do. 
And he could look at this woman with all of heaven standing before her and say, go and sin no more. And he knew that that woman would be one of his children. I love that about the Lord. When the word of God spoke to my heart, it changed me in an instant. I've never been the same. Is the same true for you? When the word of God spoke to you, didn't it change you forever? Isn't it changing you moment by moment? Isn't that what sanctification is? It is an ongoing process until we are with the Lord or until the rapture of the church. It is a process and it takes time. Don't be afraid of allowing the Lord taking time in you. I'm frustrated with myself because I see so many impurities in my own heart, my own life, and in my own mind. I am so ready just to be, do you know what I mean? You're just like, you just want to, you just want to like take off this invisible shell that's inside of you and just throw it away. And little by little, the Lord's giving you victory and victory and victory. And sometimes you slip and you get back up again. You slip and you get back up again. You cry out to him and he's taking these things. And pretty soon, little by little, you're being sanctified. That's what it means. You're being sanctified. Rejoice in that and don't get discouraged during this process of sanctification. Just keep going. Keep going. Never give up. Continue to repent. Continue to turn your back on the things. And you fight and you fight and you fight. You don't give up. Amen? Don't give up. Don't give up. Everyone around you may give up, but don't you give up. Don't give up. Two of the many hallmarks, two of the many hallmarks of God's character is his grace and his mercy. Grace is, is God giving us, giving to us what we could never deserve, and that could be spiritual or physical. God's mercy is him withholding from us what we do deserve, what we patently deserve, and what we deserve is death, because we've all sinned. Isn't that what the Bible tells us? I've said this before. The Bible says in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, but because of his grace, he's able to extend mercy due to his substitutionary atonement. He started that even with the animal sacrifices back in the Old Testament. And then finally, it, was, it came to its completion, its fruition, its final episode, if you will, when Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God, took the sin on himself of the whole entire world once and for all. There's no need to continue with those old things. The life of an innocent animal for the life of the guilty, that was the substitutionary thing that had to happen. There, without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin. Someone had to pay the price. And Jesus paid that price because he is God in the flesh. It happened once and for all. But God is a God of mercy. Many people think that God, the God of the Old Testament is just this angry God who just wants to squash people. But I want to tell you this morning that there is a lot of grace in the Old Testament. A lot of grace. Why was it that when Moses was up on top of the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, why was it that Aaron, his brother, the high priest at the time, you know, three months coming out of Egypt, he gathers all the gold, he puts it, he melts it, and he shapens, he puts it in the fire and the gold, and he starts shaping a golden calf. How was it that God spared his life? When it was the idolatry, he was trying to get out of them. And yet God, and this is after, this happened after the Ten Commandments. How is it that he survived? 
How was it that David survived when he killed, or when he first had the adulterous affair with Bathsheba and then killed her husband, Uriah, a member of his army, to cover up for it? How is it that David could still be alive? Why wasn't he taken immediately and stoned? Even the king of Israel, he committed adultery and murder, didn't he? <laughs> and notice in Second uh, Samuel chapter 12, you'll have to read that 11 and, chapters 11 and 12, but in chapter 12 in verse uh, 13, David said to Nathan the prophet, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. When he was finally found out, I have sinned. And Nathan said to him, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because this deed that you've given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. And here's the cause, David. The child that's in Bathsheba right now, that child is, that is, is to be born shall surely die. And the sword shall never depart from your house. There is always a consequence for sin. Somebody else died for David's sin, and that was his firstborn son from Bathsheba. David had other sons, but from Bathsheba, somebody paid the price. God is a God of grace and mercy. In Exodus 34, we're not going to go through all of these for the sake of time, but the Lord, remember back in Exodus 34, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, and here's the Lord speaking, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, meaning patient, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation, and it'll tell us later, of those that hate me. For you, O Lord, are good and ready to forgive, plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon you. That's who God is. There's a number of verses there in the Psalms. But see, God does not just want to punish you and ruin your fun. Most people think that. He just wants to ruin my fun. No, he wants your life to be more abundant. He wants your life to be free from those things. Because honestly, as a Christian, I've noticed that my life has been more, I've been more happy even. I know happiness can come and go, but there's a real joy, an underlying, underlying joy, regardless of my circumstances. Even when I'm going through a trial, I know that God loves me. And I know he's working things out for my good. But he's not just doing these things to ruin our fun, No. God just doesn't want to punish you. No, he wants you to live. He wants you to live. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 15, it says, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, and that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commandments, his statutes, his judgments, that you may live and multiply. He wants you to live. And in John 15, what did Jesus say? And here's where we're going to end this morning. You know, as we read of this woman, and as it stirs us, as it challenges us, God wants you to abide in him. 
He wants you to abide in him. That means a settledness. That means making a home. Making a home. It's something that's more permanent than a, a, a transient dwelling. It means to be in him and to not want to leave him. To be in a place where you are surrounded by his grace, his love. Surrounded by people that feel the same way. That's why I love uh, when we fellowship like this. We're all here together. What greater thing could we be doing than sitting and hearing the word of God and then going out from this place with that in our hearts? And hopefully the Lord is working on us always, just churning the wheels, getting us stirred up, breaking our hearts. I can't tell you how many times my heart has been broken over the last year and a half. Crushed. No kidding. So many reasons, so many ways, so many things that have happened that have just crushed me. And God's going to get the better. He's going to get the better of me. And he's doing it for my good. I know that. It's never easy, is it, when you're going through it? But at the end of it, oh, the peaceable fruit of righteousness that he does in it. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he lifts up. Every bench that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. See, that's what God wants to do in your life. He wants you to bear more fruit. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and they throw them into the fire. Aren't you glad that you're not among those brambles that are, going to be, that are destined for fire, but rather... You're in his arms because you're abiding in him. Can I encourage you this morning to continue to abide in Jesus? Why? By this my father is glorified, he says at the end of verse 8, that you may, may bear much fruit so that you shall be my disciples. He wants you to bear much fruit. And how do you do that? You abide in him. How do we abide in the Lord? Well, you, you read the Bible. You pray. You put into action those things that you read, not looking at those things as something somebody else has to do, but I look at them and I shine the searchlight of God's word on my own heart in the privacy of my own volition, and I say, Lord, you do this work in me. Read the Bible for yourself first, rather than always pointing the finger. That was a problem with the Pharisees. The religious leaders, those guys who dragged this woman up on the Temple Mount, they were reading the Bible reading the Old Testament scriptures, that's all they had at the time, and they were looking at other people. That was the problem. Looking at other people, this is what the law says, you're going to die. Well, what about your own heart? Well, let's not talk about that. It doesn't work that way. We have to allow it to apply to our own hearts. Is the word of God bearing fruit in your life? Is it, are you fostering it? Are you letting it bear fruit? Oh, yeah, you don't have to work. You, you just let it happen. Just let it happen. When the Spirit of God comes in you, all you have to do is just walk with him and enjoy, enjoy him and live life honestly and, and good. Live a good life. Do the right things. And it's never easy to do the right thing sometimes, but do the right thing even if it hurts, even if everyone else is against you, even if you lose your job, for heaven's sakes, do the right thing. Do the right thing. Follow Christ and you will bear fruit. And you let him worry about the results. Are you fostering it? 
Are you letting it bear fruit? Or, as some, are you resisting the Spirit of God? Resisting Him. Thank you very much, God. I'll take it from here. I used to do that. I used to hold my hand out and say, Lord, I know what you expect of me. I know what your word says, but this is an area of my heart that I will not allow you to come into. I have the keys, and I'm not ready to give them over. And you know the Lord is such a gentleman. He'll say, okay, Rob, I love you. And I'll let you think you have those keys, and I'll let you continue. I'll see you in a couple months. And sure enough, a couple months later, I'm on my knees again, complaining and crying. Lord, I messed up again. Will you still accept me? He says, of course. I will accept you. Confess it. You can't hide it from me anyway. I mean, think plain hide-and-go-seek with God. Where are you? Remember in the garden? Where are you, Adam? You think God knew where he was? Oh, yeah. I'm over here behind the pomegranate tree. You can't see me. No, he knew where he was. He knew where he was. Not only physically, but in his heart. He knew where Adam was. So are you resisting? Are you quenching the Spirit of God? Or are you abiding in Him? I want to encourage you this morning to abide in Jesus Christ and put the things of the flesh far behind. Take Him at His word and let this passage, even though it was very hard to go through, because nobody likes this topic, but yet it is the elephant in the room, is it not? Adultery and sexual sin, it is the elephant in the room that nobody likes to talk about. But you know what? We have to talk about it. We have to address that elephant Let's stand together. I apologize for... um, We had a vacation Bible study here, and we had a baptism picnic. We had the back door open for a number of hours, and I can say this now because I don't want to distract anybody, although some of you already know, but we have a few bees flying around. Um, They're going to be evicted this week. We'll make sure of it, so don't fear, okay? And, um, but just want to thank you for just being true to the word of, of the Lord, for desiring to hear what he has to say, because his, his ways are truth, and he loves all of you, and you need to know that. Regardless of what you've gone through, regardless of your past, know that Christ loves you more than you could possibly ever imagine. He loves you so much. But sometimes he has to tell us hard things. He's told me hard things and it's broken my heart. But you know what? I love him for that. Didn't Job say that? Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Because I know in the slaying of me that it's only because he's got something better for me. God doesn't crucify or, or take something out of your life, but to replace it with something so much better. Will you allow him to do it? Will you abide in him? Let's do that together, shall we? Father, we just, we thank you. Lord, I pray that for each one of us, Lord, you've planted us in your dear son. Lord, you've planted us in Christ and we are secure and we are blessed and we are happy, God. And Lord, with all of the craziness in the world around us, with all of the confusion and all of the discouragement, Father, there is such a great deal of it around us. God, help us to abide in you today and to really focus in on you, Jesus. Please help us. Lord, how we look forward to your soon return. 
we can't wait to see you. And Lord, if we feel that way, we can only imagine how much you are excited when you see the expressions on our face, when we see you for the very first time. Lord, I can't imagine what my expression will be if my face will even be able to be shown because it will more than likely be in the ground as my face has hit the ground and humble adoration of this one who was perfect in all of his ways, who paid the price. So Lord, thank you. Bless my brothers and sisters, Lord. Encourage them bigly. <laughs> Encourage them in a much bigly way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have a great weekend.